Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Chris with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Joe Moen with Chimes Media. Hi, Joe. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Chris. Good to be here. Awesome. Hey, yeah, thanks for being here. So, Joe, give us a little bit about your background. Well, um, in my earliest days, I was a software engineer. Um, I worked in the banks, initially Chase and Citibank on Wall Street, um, and I was an officer at Citibank. And then I went out on my own. Uh, I started a software company called Progenet uh, back in the and uh, ultimately created a company that created a product that had ultimately a billion dollars of cumulative revenue sales. That product was purchased by Computer Shits. Uh, I kept the company and took the company public. The five and Microsoft and Novell as my biggest outside shareholders. Took the company public and did a regular registration and built that company up and until um, I left and I start election.com, a company to do internet voting. That company uh, very quickly was in the Red Herring 100 and we did the only election ever in the States of any consequence. That was the Arizona Democratic 2000, one core. And um, that was a life-defining experience. Um, we'd have um, heads of state show up and, and call us and, you know, gov- the government of China show up on our doorstep one day. We had prime ministers calling me, cabinet members calling me. I got to meet um, the heads of state. My staff got to meet the heads of state of three or four different countries. 
and it was the, the it was life-defining experience, you know, having every hacker in the world trying to make an election fail and getting the help from the Technorati to make sure it worked. Um, and after that, uh, I started a company to automate of money. It's Catholic Church, or much of the U.S. Catholic Church, called Parish Pay, and it was sold um, to another company called Yapstone years later. They're still around. And... Um, then in 2003, I started a company, basically put digital music pirates out of business to, in response to Kazaa and LimeWire. I started a company called Sparrow Frog, which I ran for seven years, create a market-driven solution to digital music pirates. And um, in that, I helped usher in the level, the, the era of free legal music with universal music. And then in 2014, um, I ran a fashion magazine and uh, a network of fashion too. <laughs> Very That's cool. Yeah, sounds like sounds like a really diverse background. So um, just curious, what... Um, what was the drive from one thing to another? I mean, you mentioned the, the life-defining experience with the Arizona um, Democratic primary um, and moving from you know digital music to fashion. What would you say were the things that drew you to the next thing? Well, it's funny because people say, hey, boy, that's a wild turn from you know enterprise software to running elections to collecting money for the church to digital fashion. But you know, from my point of view, I've really been doing the same thing since I started. I mean, Every time I start a new company, I try to do half of what I used to do in my old job and half of it be entirely new. You know, I'm a, I'm a real creative type. My mother was an artist, and um, I, I was a math major in school, so I'm a, you know, a math guy too, but I'm also a, an artist, right? And so I don't like to do the same thing over again twice. Each time I do something, I like to do something part entirely new and part the same thing I've been doing all along, you know, my tech and background and so forth. And uh, so it's really, for me, been a composed change. But I always kind of look and say, what, how is the world different than from my last job? And how do I want to take leadership in something that's really different and new and creative and change the world? And the other half of me is how do I leverage the, you know, the, the engineering and technical talent that I already have so I, I'm effective in making that kind of contribution. So for me, it's, it's, it's a continuum for me, even though from the outside it looks like a radical turn <laughs> with every new job. Sure. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a great way of uh, breaking it down. So it's, it's building really on uh, your previous successes. And that's a, that's a great way to, to describe how you're transitioning. So can we go more into your tech background? How did you first get involved in tech? And how has it evolved over time? So at college, I got hired by Chase. And he, this is in the early 1980s. They were, um, you know, it was a really easy thing, you know, computer programming and software development was a gigantic thing. And back then, this, you didn't outsource the stuff, you did it in-house. So on my floor, there were 1,200 programs at Chase. So it was a great time, and Chase basically bankrolled his software engineering education for years and taught me everything. Amazing. And um, the part of the software engineering business I liked them was data communications, making different kinds of computers talk to each other. It was fascinating. So I did that, you know, and this is in Wall Street, and then, um, then I moved over to Citibank when I was worth a lot more money than Chase was willing to pay me, and I did it for them for three years at 111 Wall Street, which was also a great experience. I learned a ton there. But after about three years, I, even before the time was up, I decided to start my own software business. I realized that you could make a lot more money running your own company than you could collecting a W-2 paycheck. So I ended up starting a software company to do enterprise software, but using products that could um, allow you to make different kinds of computers be managed as one. So that was fascinating. It's an era where we wrote one software package where an element of the software would talk to and run on different other computers. Apple to IBM to Unix to Wang to me. I mean, it was just time. And uh, we created that product. We didn't make hardly any money for years. And then all of a sudden, one day it hit and boom, we were making a ton of money. We sold out and <laughs> we sold it for six million bucks. And the guy we sold it to flipped it for $50 million to a good associate's predecessor. 
which is like, ouch, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of money. <laughs> and then Computer Associates, the CA, wanted to sell a billion dollars worth of it over the next decade. So the, um, you know, each guy made more with it. But, uh, you know, we, we figured, okay, well, look, you know, we, we had a hit. My partner retired at that point, early 30s, and he figured he had enough money that he needed for the rest of his life. So he just stopped. And I kept all my money in the business and kept on going and said, okay, now what's the next thing we're going to buy? And I'd be a mainframe. We're going to take the company public. We're gonna, and, you know, that, that was a whole other set of learning and uh, a lot of ups and downs. But it, it was really exciting work. And, and I really focused on communications and computer security. Uh, and then when I left it, I sold my company. My, my, I sold my shares in my company because it was already public by that point and decided to do something entirely new. And having a computer security background and with the Internet and the dot-com era, I said, hey, let's, let's run elections on the Internet. And that um, seems like a way we could change the world. And I was able to recruit or as partners some really amazing people. John Kennedy Jr. was negotiating with me to my board of directors, and he died. The fact that he was willing to talk made me realize, hey, if he'll talk to me, maybe maybe anybody will, right? So I reached out to George Bush and Jimmy Carter, George Bush Sr., Jimmy Carter, invited them to join my board. They both told me no right away, but at least I got a no, which is a big deal, right? So then I got the Prime Minister of Ireland to join my board of directors. I invited Helmut Kohl of Germany and Paul Keating of Australia to join the board. They said no, but then I got Jack Kemp, who ran for vice president, to join. Newt Gingrich wanted to join the board. We ended up turning him down, uh, but I got to spend one-on-one time with him in Washington. He, and Newt Gingrich was the smartest person I ever met. One-on-one was him. But it was a time where, you know, running an election on the Internet, to this day, the only one ever really run in the U.S. online. Any mistake we made was on television around the second. You know, that was really stressful. We had some girls, college girls in Arizona had problems voting online, and CNN camera crews in a dorm in minutes. Getting those problems addressed and fixing them was amazing. We had every hacker in the world trying to break it. You know, we only survived that because we had the all-out help from Cisco system. Uh, they were unbelievable tech support organizations around the world standing by to deflect all the denial of service attacks and other attacks. He had VeriSign. They were very supportive. They were great. We had Microsoft, which pulled it all the stops to help us with the Apple problems because Apple, the only company that would not help us during the Arizona election was Steve Jobs and Apple. They would not do a thing. Steve Jobs' secretary. So we had to reach out to Apple's biggest shareholder, Microsoft, to help us figure out what the problems were with Mac browser, things like that. So it was a wild experience. I mean, and every morning a limo would show up to my house at 4 a.m. to take me to CNN or CBS World News this morning or ABC you know, News or whatever. And in the evening, we'd be back in Fox News or whatever. I had television networks, every single television in the U.S., every single newspaper, big one in the U.S., um, and most foreign TV networks you see, Global Brazil, and Japan, I mean, constantly rest during that period. And it was amazing. I mean, it, it literally, one day the government of China, had, People's Republic of China, had people show up at my doorstep, and I thought they were going to be there to kidnap me or kill me or something. I was getting ready to jump out the window, <laughs> you know, and it turned out they just wanted to be friends and asked me about internet voting. But, I mean, it flipped me out, and, you know, they're all in there, yakking away in Mandarin in my office, and I'm like, whoa. This didn't happen at my old job. So, but people thought internet voting was going to change the world. And in fact, what happened is that it did change. We, you know, primary turnout is typically like 5%, right? We doubled the record turnout for a primary that Arizona back that year, doubled the record. And young people, Latinos, Blacks, Native Americans also all broke records for voter turnout groups. What happened sadly, though, is after that, all the laws were changed to make sure internet voting could and the justification given by any politician you ever spoke to was that, oh, no, it's not secure, right? Can't do it because it's not secure. And not to dismiss that there are certainly good faith concerns with security internet voting, 
But privately, the admission was, look, I mean, you know, if you make it too easy to people, people to vote, more people will. And instead of politicians getting elected at a 90% rate, getting reelected at a 90% rate, all bets are off. It'll be 50-50. Right? You'd have to justify yourself to the public every single election. And no incumbent wants that. <laughs> so Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, they all close ranks to make sure it could never be done. And that's what happened. And so it was a wild, life-changing experience. And um, uh, but ultimately couldn't do it because the powers, the people in power, were never going to let it happen. Once they realized, you know, for a year everybody was subservient to me, political leaders, presidents, prime ministers, because they figure I, I was going to have power over them. But I think over time they realized that um, they could just make it illegal and say it's not safe and stop it, and that would be the end of it. It's kind of what happened. It's it's really amazing. First of all, such a life-defining moment. I mean, how how amazing is that? Um, but then, then the next thing, we're you know we're we're talking about an age of blockchain and new, very much new technologies that were like the internet taking off in the early '90s. And so, with that immutability of um, of the blockchain, you know, when when do voting or when does voting online come back into play? You know, when do the powers that be go, hey, this is this is the way that the world is going. This is you know what the people want. What are your thoughts on that? I did a lot of interviews this last year, you know, when it became clear that the Russian FSB intelligence had been attempting to compromise the United States, you know, presidential election and Brexit. They, they clearly attempted to do mischief, and they probably did some. And it becoming, it was a, certainly became obvious to Putin's government, but it's obvious to me that, yeah, U.S. elections are inherently, you know, the common wisdom in the United States, which is wrong, is that can presidential election should have to compromise all 3,100. Right, the United States is decentralized in the way we run. It's unlike the rest of the world, we run 3,100 small elections instead of you know one big one. Okay, so we figured, okay, we're safe. And also, there was concern about you know hacking electronic voting. So most of the country's gone back to paper ballots and said, hey, we're good. We're using paper. Can't be hacked. We're all set. Right. Well, that both those happy assumptions that were safe were wrong. Okay, and the Russians understand this really well. Okay, first of all. It may be 3,100 counties to compromise an election for president, but to compromise an election for Congress, okay, you might only have to compromise one, okay? And there is evidence to suggest, while I'm being recorded, but that at least one member of Congress is already a plan. Out in California, I think everybody knows who he is, and privately, co-Republican senators believe he's compromised. And probably going forward, we're going to get more. It would be easy enough to compromise the election for one county or two counties or for a small state, you know, like a Wyoming. Could could a hostile foreign actor like a China or Russia, if they wanted to, and clearly the Russians want to, um, put their own guy in as senator from Wyoming? Could it be done? Absolutely. Okay. Now, the question becomes, well, they can't hack paper ballots, right? There's, no, of course you can hack a paper ballot. It's actually easier than an electronic act. Here's why. They're not counted by They go into a right? They're basically PCs with a scanner on right now. Do you think you need a security clearance to write the software for that? It was get be able to get a W-2 job, right? You can work as a software programmer for one of the election manufacturers, right? So let's say the hostile state actor could put his own guy in to write the software for the scanners to a county without being detected. And then you say, well, if the vote is controversial, there could be a recount, right? So then you'd have the physical audit trail to make sure the vote wasn't compromised. Yeah, but how do I compromise that? Well... If you've ever watched Scandal or the TV show The Americans, which is based on, I mean, Oliver North wrote it. It's based on, you know, real real events. You could have effectively sleeper spies get a job with the local county of election. Wouldn't be that hard. They hire people all the time, okay? What you'd have to do 
is have a synchronized swapping of the lockbox that can the audit trail paper ballots with so in such a way that it matches the electronic vote in the way you compromise. Now, you don't have to change every vote. You just have to change 5% of them, something like that, to make your guy win in the counties you want him to win, okay? So to put your own congressman in and your own senator in, okay, is well within the budget and the means of a state actor, okay? Now, let's get into flipping the presidential election. You have to hack all 3,100 counties to flip the presidential election, right? Actually not. To hack five counties, three in South Florida, okay? okay? Florida's the big swing state. And also maybe one or two in Ohio, one or two in either Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, okay? That's all you have to do. The Trump's margin of victory in the Electoral College, he lost the popular vote big time amongst all the states. But in a few swing states that he won, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, his margin of victory in those states was about 70,000 spread across three states. Not that big and not a flip. So a determined state actor wanted to, could. Now that we've seen, and believe me, there's, I'm sure in Russia, in a building somewhere on a whiteboard, they're mapping this out now. These kind of attacks on the United States are imminent. They're not speculative, right? We know that Russia's tried to, the Russian intelligence services have actively worked to hack into voter registration systems in addition to whatever their mischief they're doing on social media. Our election systems are not only hackable, they're going to be. And it's not going to take a lot to change the outcome of how our democracy operates. It's just going to flip a few here, a few there to put their guys in key places, okay? This is coming. This is imminent, and it's not even that hard for them. Wow. Believe me, they're planning it in whiteboards. So how do you fix that, Okay. Only one way I know how to fix it, you need blockchain-based voting systems. And I don't just mean for remote internet voting. I'm talking about for in-polling place voting. you got to have it. There's no other way. Because these paper ballots that we do now, we have been lulled into a false sense of security because paper can be hacked. And in fact, okay, I just laid out a game plan of how to do it. If you sit with a whiteboard and say, if we're going to hack an election, how do we do it? I just mapped out how. And there's probably other ways to get it done too. So, And it's not even that. That's the irony. For state actor, if IBM's trying to do it, a little more complicated because a state act, a hostile state actor can break laws and they don't care, right? So blockchain is the only answer that I know of and how to secure it. Well, and hopefully there, that awareness level that, you know, that you're putting out there right now is, um, is being looked at in, in these circumstances so that we can prevent it. Hopefully it is. I, I, let me challenge <laughs> yeah. you on that, okay? Have you heard the president of the United States talk about the urgency for doing this? I've heard about no one talking about the urgency for doing it. So, Thank you very much. Okay, so, so uh, let, me, let me give you a pushback. Number one sure. is we have been lulled into a false sense of security uh, by thinking newspaper now are safe. That's, that's utter nonsense. Secondly, okay, uh, we got a bigger problem. Our greatest defense against our elections being by a bad actor, decentralized nature of them, also is the reason that we can't put a defense together because to do – voting systems that have the cyber defenses, the auditability, blockchain-based voting systems and such, this is expensive transition. And you can only afford that transition on scale, okay? However, with the decentralized nature of the U.S. election system, we've basically run 3,100 small elections every year, not one big one, okay? There is no scale. Okay, do you think Goopa County in the middle of Alaska or, you know, Montana is going to put together the cybersecurity defenses and the employees in the in the you know the the uh, county board of elections have security clearance and stuff like that. Give me a break. It, I mean, I don't even know how that's doable. So yeah. you know, even even in a big city like a New York City board of elections, right? They got plenty of money compared to the yeah. But do they have like you know state of the art cyber defenses and stuff like that? Absolutely not. I mean, we got them in Washington, 
The problem is the federal government doesn't run elections at all. Do have money to spend on elections. They're off trying to <laughs> indulge the fantasy that three million illegal aliens voted. You know, it was utter nonsense. I mean, there's I mean, complete idiocy. So our priorities are completely out of whack. Our, our, our major threat uh, that our elections are going to be attacked again by hostile state actor and the Russian security services is a given. We know it's coming and we're doing nothing about it. And we're going to rely on small county IT budgets to be our defense. We're doomed. I mean, really, we are. And the problem is fixable. How do you think, what is the flex point on this? Like, how is, what's it going to take to, to get that fixed? First of all, it's going to have to take, well, look, let's, let's be blunt, right? The president of the United States and his administration are going to have to publicly say, we are under attack. And we are going to use the resources, the Department of Defense and the federal government to come up with a plan to fend off that attack. But we cannot solve this problem at the local level. It's too great, right? If you had one county that was really progressive about it, believe me, the hostile state actor could easily deal with it, okay? It's only at the federal government level. We have people's securities clearances, billion-dollar IT budgets, and stuff like that. We begin to deal. But we, the first step in addressing it is going to be accepting that the problem exists. And right now, for whatever leader, and not instead, if anything, is denied the problem. And in, or in the best case, trivialized it and attempted to, you know, I mean, look, unless the president of the United States says we are vulnerable, we are being attacked, think about it, we're going to put our best bullet, best read to take us to the next level so we're so vulnerable again. Until that happens, we're going to, we're going to be sitting ducks. I mean, I'm an optimist by nature, okay? I mean, I'm, people have said to me, I'm the eternal optimist. I'm the kind of guy that I once had a therapist say to me, I'm optimistic at times, okay? And for me to paint the bleak picture, I, and I'm not an alarmist. I'm just telling you. Yeah, yeah, well, and, I mean, it's... Know, it's it's quite evident, and clearly, clearly something has to be done about it, and and hopefully that will. I mean, hope doesn't make it happen, but you know, at, at some point, something has to be done about it. So look, it, nothing's. There's two problems, okay, with with doing something about it. One is, okay, I mean, again, I don't want to be political. Anything to do with elections, you can't be political. You've got to be apolitical, right? But you can't have half the country giving the president a free pass on not defining, not publicly accepting the problem, okay? You can't do that. We have to decide to hold our leaders accountable and say, look, whatever happened in 2016 is in the past, okay? Looking forward, we know we're being attacked, okay? And we demand that our leaders do something about it. And if our leader does, doesn't even publicly acknowledge the problem or the scope of it, then we've got to get rid of the leader, and we've got to get rid of the leaders that are sucking up to him. Have to, okay? If we don't do that, we Americans don't deserve our sovereignty. We have effectively, for our own political whims, abrogated our sovereignty to others. So we have to either have or force our leaders to face up to and accept the problem, and if they are not willing to, replace those leaders. The next thing, unless it's Putin picking the candidates for us that are replace them, um, the next thing also that we have to do is we've got to wake up and say, look, just because we're using paper ballots doesn't mean the elections can be hacked. They can easily be hacked, okay? This lulling of a false sense of security, this is what scares me the most because, you know, right, left, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, okay? The paper ballots are there. We're safe. We ain't safe, okay? And we're not the only ones that know that we're not safe. So this is um, uh, this is really frightening. And we know we need blockchain-based voting systems. We know that there's all kinds of issues with that. We know we also have to put our cyber defenses in play, and we know we have to at least at some level nationalize the defenses. And the, at the rate we're going and the way we're going, I, we're going to be hacked again. And, you know, maybe we have uh, – who knows what – I'm frightened. I, I really am. I'm frightened about it. And I think that um, 
The United States has to wake up. We dominated the, the world for the last century. You know, time is running out if we don't get our act together. Yeah, the, the sleeper has to awaken. So. People, people got to be slapped into to not being complacent about this. People are, and it needs to change. Well, this is, um, I mean, it's really fascinating talking about the, the, the voting side of things and, and that landscape. Can you tell us more about current issues that you're seeing with um, ICOs and subpoenas? Uh, well, I think that, look, there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny um, of ICOs. And in fact, I don't know if you watched the John Oliver special on HBO last week. Did you see it? I haven't seen that yet. Do you watch Tell John Oliver? It. Was it last week yes. tonight? Okay. Absolutely hysterical, right? I mean, poke fun at, at ICOs and Brock Pierce and uh, cryptocurrencies generally. And, you know, very interesting piece. Very entertaining. But look, um, the SEC is beginning to scrutinize ICOs. Because why? Okay. Because they want to make sure that investors aren't taken advantage of by people who are unscrupulous, right? Now, a lot of money has been raised in ICOs, and the SEC is saying, look, we have rules in place to protect retail investors from getting ripped off, and we want to make sure that people are following those rules, okay? And one could easily make an argument that not everybody has, okay? Uh, and I am not saying that, you know, all utility tokens are securities, because clearly that many of them are not, right? I mean, Ethereum is not a security, right? right. Uh, Ripple is not mm -hmm. a security. I mean, they, there are some really good ICOs that have been done, some really good cryptocurrencies. And I, I'm a big fan of some of them, like Civic, and I think it's just really innovative, great products, right? But some people have, um, you know, just gone out to raise money and pretend and, and either have given a poor deal to their public by not giving them any equity ownership in their venture so that even if the company is successful, the purchaser of the tokens is not going to participate in that success, right? And if if it's a good faith donation, that's fine. But, you know, some of them are really investment and, you know, maybe they needed to follow the security laws, right? right. So yeah. it's, it's not um, unreasonable that the SEC – it's not a surprise nor reasonable that they would spend it. Now, flip side of that, okay, there are a lot of legitimate good people trying to, out there trying to change the world. And I lived through this in the dot-com era, right? I mean, um, look, there's a lot of crap that went public in the dot-com era. However, there are a lot of good companies out there too, okay? I mean, for every pets, you know, and, and something else, there was an Amazon, okay? And some of these companies were great investments, and if you invested and you stuck with it, you did well, okay? Um, I think that the challenge on any um, of token purchasers and the investing public is, you know, picking the good ones and understanding your own objectives, right? If you're, if you're simply trying to enable a market and you don't mind making a quote-unquote contribution to enable that market, that's fine, okay? If you're trying to make an investment to get a return on that investment, then it might indeed be a security in many cases. And if it is, you've got to treat it like one, okay? Um, you know, again, from my point of view, I've done a real IPO on a real exchange with prestigious shareholders like Microsoft and Novell in my box, right? And I've been through the, the registration statements, and, and I've run a public company. But I've, and I've also um, had a reporting company, too. I once uh, made a company, a reporting company, um, so that its financials and, and material facts were public, but not trade that company on exchange. Okay, I've done that, too. I did that at Sparrow Frog. So I've I've done one and a half public offerings, if you will, okay? And so having done this before, okay, I think that some of what we're seeing is a lot of the business operators or entrepreneurs are young and immature, right? They don't understand the rules. And some of, but I think, look, at the end of the day, this all works as long as everybody remembers the golden rule, right? And I'm not talking about he who has the gold makes That's not the golden rule I'm talking about. Okay. okay. Treat others like you want to be treated yourself, Right. If you're an entrepreneur and you want people to buy your token, to put money into your company, crypto, Ethereum, Bitcoin, or cash, dollars, right? Um, make sure that you're selling them or something that you would want to buy yourself or you would want your mother or your sister to buy, right? 
if you're selling somebody and your philosophy is simply last full standing, um, or the inherent value of the token is based on however well I hype it, okay, that's not a good idea, right? If you're selling something, somebody that it is a good faith, you know, charity or donation that they're making, and that's fine if they choose to make it. And if you're selling somebody something that is security, that they're putting their money in, hoping to get a good return on investment, that's also fine, okay? And there are a lot of good operators out there, and there are good deals out there. But I think that the SEC is right to make sure that ma and pa investors don't get ripped off. That's their job, right? I mean, we have to remember, there's a reason the SEC was created in the first place, right? Um, the SEC was created after the 1920s Great Depression, when a lot of stocks were garbage and there was nobody. So that's why there is an SEC. They have a good faith role to, that they've got to fulfill. Um, I think operators like me, and, and one of the issues we've decided is for what we were doing, we did require a proprietary currency. A proprietary. We required that um, not so much because of blockchain-based needs itself, but rather we required it because of doing international commerce. When we're going country to country, it's very difficult at scale to have like music-related contracts from Japan to Brazil. I need Japanese lawyers, Brazilian lawyers, and it's hard. Generation of global commerce, I think these smart contracts are going to be coming. You need to have the contracts become self because otherwise you can scale the business. So by using crypto, by using Ethereum-based smart contracts, for example, um, there are a lot of innovations that you can take advantage of uh, than before, and that's a really good thing. Okay, Now, in my company's case, Chimes Media, we've bifurcated our tokens. We basically, if you can envision the token with hologram in front of you, separated it into two, you know, kind of like the zygote dividing, except into two unequal heads. One part of it, the utility token, which is the proprietary microcurrency that we use, enable, you know, global commerce with smart contracts. The other half is an equity, actual equity. It's not a derivative of the equity. It's an actual equity, okay? And that plan to trade on an exchange and what we plan to do is an actual registration. Now, no one wanted to be the first guy doing it, okay? But we came up with a plan that will work, the first guy to do it, and not have it take forever. We basically are retrofitting the ICO approach into the securities laws, into the 1934 in the U.S. So what we're saying is we have, we have an equity in addition to a utility token. The equity token is how we're going to go out and raise the line share of the money that comes in. And that equity token, we're... Well, in the short term, resale of that equity token is private placement, okay, you know, accredited. But we will not distribute the, the equity token in six months, okay? We'll wait to distribute those. And in the interim, we will file what's called a Form 10. A Form 10 is just like a registration statement, okay, except that it's effective in 60 days. And 60 days afterwards, people who've held their tokens, okay, for more than six months can trade them on an exchange so that any even retail investors can buy them. And this approach we're taking, the only approach that's going to let people trade, uh, well, presumptuous, but is, is a significant step forward versus what people are doing now. People trying to trade tokens as securities right now are relying on what I call second market type approaches. In other words, limiting the sale to accredited investors and, and they have to vet the individuals and that'll take a week and you have to, the investors have to be willing to give their private financial information to a third party they never met, hope they don't sell it. And, you know, it, it just, there's only 8 million accredited investors in the U.S. and only a small subset of those people are willing to give their private financial information to third parties and investment. You're basically you know, filtering out the pool of investors from the whole population of the U.S. down to a million people, that's it. And th this is why I laugh when people say compliant ICO, okay? Their method of coming up with compliance is creating a funnel that eliminates 90% of it. And the consequence of that is the tokens are going to trade at a lower volume, lower market cap, lower token cap, less liquidity, 
and it'll trade at a lower price than they would. If you eliminate, for the sake of argument, it's some number, I'll call it 90%. Eliminate 90% of the prospective purchasers, it means lower token prices, lower return on investment, lower IRR, everything, okay? So we've said, no, it's not going to work. So we're creating this, this process, which is basically retrofitting ICOs into the 1934 securities laws. So we can register the company and then have all the tokens trade under Rule 144 and then freely retrade. So I think this method works and it's a good way to get out of the box for a company like us. And we, we want to raise $100 million in tokens this way, you know, with God's help. And so that's that's what I'm doing. That's yeah. And so, so like you, you mentioned in the beginning, from, you know, from one project to the next, you, you brought something else in, into the next project, you know, half, half old and half new. And yeah. so that's exactly what you're doing here. That's what it sounds like. Correct. That's exactly right. I'm, I'm, I'm taking that what I, I learned how to do in two prior jobs with securities laws and come up with an innovative solution to the challenges faced by companies that need to raise large amounts of investment capital COs. And, you know, it's a good thing because crypto introduces a whole new range of benefits in trading original stocks, right? Um, with blockchain-based trading systems, you don't have naked short selling. You have um, you can fractionalize the, the values really quick so you can have like, you know, somebody can buy $3 worth of an issue, right? So you can't go out today and buy $3 worth of Google stock or Apple stock, you know, um, with tokens you can. And it will, and there's other benefits as well. So it, it'll really bring, it, another benefit is the trade that can settle in minutes instead of three days, right? So there's all kinds of benefits and innovations in blockchain-based trading systems. And by having our equity tokens trade on a blockchain-based trading system, um, we believe we'll get efficiency in the market that will give us a better multiple based on our financial performance. Oh, very good. So you, you mentioned the token. Um, can you go back and tell us more about Chimes Media and what it does? So Nutshell is in the business. We we acquired some databases of the production credits of music. You know, credit, production credits are like if you go to the movies, the last three minutes of credits, scroll on the screen and tell you who was involved in making that. The same thing happens in music. You make a record in the studio. There's production credits. You, know, you have the members of the band, the studio musicians, sound engineer, the producer. There's people involved in the creative process of making composers, whatnot. So we have a very large database, data set of production credits of music, and we've repurposed that to consolidate search results on Google so that right now, music-oriented search results do not have one dominating website that pops up in the top three all the time. Whereas if you search in Google for something related to television or film, IMDb and Wikipedia will show up in the top three or four results almost all the time, right? Yourself, I know. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yes. So for us, okay, that no one's consolidated the search results like that well, for music, okay? And that's what we are doing. And we're doing it. We went out and we found two very, very large databases uh, in Europe that were developed for this purpose. And we're bringing them in together and using that to power... Uh, a website that is designed to not only appeal to people, to Mr. Young in particular, but also designed to index well to Google so that when people do do queries or searches, um, that we can show up in the top three or four, that we can be the website and web mobile sites that consolidates these. And it's a massive amount of search. I mean, our estimates are that around 8% of all searches generally. It's a big number, right? And if you look at IMDb, their audience has been anywhere from a quarter of a billion to half a billion people a month to use their websites worldwide, okay? websites or apps. And that's a big number. We think we keep it bigger. We think music um, uh, has a slightly bigger audience than that even. But also, you know, Amazon with IMDb, 
Amazon didn't really promote IMDb in many countries that they could have, like China and other places. Uh, and we plan to go be more aggressive internationally. With it. So it is our plan uh, to become one of the biggest entertainment media websites in the world, playbook that IMDb developed. And, um, you know, that's, that's Chimes. And for us, as our interest in the blockchain is not for rights administration. There's a number of people out there trying to them well. Um, and it's not really related to live performance. And a number of people are doing that, too. Our business is consolidating search results and therefore creating a very, very large audience and selling products to the audience, okay, whether it be commercial products, business to business, business to consumer. Um, and the cryptocurrencies allow us to, for the B2B products to self-administer them through smart contracts, but also for consumers to have new kinds of experiences that they couldn't prefer. So, for example, if you're Googling, um, you're searching on the Internet for information about your favorite singer, you could see the results. Hey, would you like to talk to Google Hangouts? Would you like to exchange letters with him? And, you know, it'll cost you, depending on the artist, $100 equivalent, you know. And from a fan in any country to communicate with the recording artist or the composer or the guitar player from the band, okay, um, the cryptocurrencies enable us to do that at scale. And that's why we created a, a, an ERC-20-based utility token. And it is an interesting impl implementation for us. So our, our interest in the blockchain was not the typical music blockchain thing about rights administration. It was really about crypto. And that's why we created a, a proprietary utility token. However, we're not relying on that to raise capital. We're raising capital through an equity token completely different. Okay. Walk us through someone searching uh, for an artist or perhaps a producer or something else. What information are they trying to find besides communicating with them? And what is the incentive to do that through, uh, through Chimes? The person is not going to – I mean, most people are going to search – when they search for something related to entertainment, it's frivolous, right? If you search for something right. related to you know, an actor, why are you doing that? Because you're watching Hawaii Five-0 and you notice the supporting actor's name, Scott Kahn, and you say, I wonder if he's on Sun. Right, and you Google it for that reason, and guess what? You didn't search on IMDb. You searched on Google, and Google happened to return IMDb in the top three search results. Why do you click on IMDb? Because there's a thumbnail. People click on pictures 38% of the time, as opposed to 3% of the time on text. Right? So you clicked on IMDb because it's returned in the search results on Google with the picture. Okay? And then you see the website for Hawaii Five-0, and you see Scott Kahn, and you click on him, and then you notice, yes, he is James Conn. Okay? So it's frivolous. It's impulsive, it's whimsical. It's people search Google for information about television shows and film all the time. And, and to give you a sense of what that number of people is, okay, in the course of a year, you're talking about two to three Americans, some years more, okay? Any given month, okay, you're looking at maybe a third of American adults any given month. Over the course of a year, if you add all that together, you're talking about two-thirds of all adults had been on it. They don't even realize they've been on it. In the case of music, it's similar. Now, they're not going to go to chimesdb.com and say, hey, I want to search on this. They're going to search Google or they're going to search Bing. I mean, in the beginning, not all the time, but over time, we expect to be in the top three most of the time. Now, where are you in your roadmap? The data set, Big Music Credits database, was built at the cost of tens of millions back in 2015. We have spent the last three years to make it suitable for this, right? And we, we will be continuing to work the next five years, but we are currently developing the user experience to go with that, okay? We've been working hard on that today, <laughs> and we hope to start rolling it out to the public over the next few months, okay, in the beginning, but it will roll out um, gradually. It's not going to roll out with a bang. It's going to roll out with a whimper initially, and each month it'll get better and better and more expansive and more expansive. Um, the comp I mean, we are flamboyant in the nature of the way we, because we are 
in the entertainment business after all. Uh, but you're going to see the website start rolling out, and you're going to be among the other things we're going to do in a few of the innovations with our crypto is we're going to crowdfund long tail updates. I mean, a lot of the short tail, you know, the biggest stacks, the Katy Perry's, One Direction's, the Justin B. Yeah, that'll be populated by us or by the record label or their artist managers, right? But for the long tail updates, you know, your uncle was in a garage band and did a record in the 70s or the 90s, what have you. Um, we're going to let the public come in and fill in the missing of who was the producer where, you know, it's not on the record or who, who, what was the inspiration behind this? You know, who was the bass player? Why did he get kicked out of the band? That kind of thing. The, the kind of long tail data. Okay. We're going to crowdsource a lot of that so we can fill it in. And that kind of information, I mean, much of this information might be available online somewhere, but it's typically unstructured. Okay. So you can talk and it's not bad. I mean, for the biggest acts, like let's say, Guns N' Roses. You can say to Google, you can literally say to Google, okay, who was the guitar player for Guns N' Roses? Who was the drummer? Google will actually do a good job for a band that big, okay? It might not tell you who the drummer was, but it might tell you, you know, give you the names of the four band members. But Google will eventually, the artificial intelligence will eventually say Stephen Adler, Guns N' Roses. But short of the top, do that, not even for the long tail, but for the medium tail. Because even if most of that data is out there on the web somewhere, it's unstructured, okay? And while unstructured data is great, okay, to give really precise answers, a really precise question, gain all kinds of new things, you got to have structure, okay? And that's what we have. And you got to present it in a way that is not a Wikipedia article co-edited by 500 people, but rather it's cool and interesting. And it's my vision that Chimes will also develop over time independent new brand. So in the long term, I envision us having our own award shows like that might be more innovative than what's out there now in the sense they might be global as opposed to country by country. That up to now, media has been country by country for the most part. But the new era of media, younger consumers are definitely global consumers. They, the people in you know Texas care about what the people in Egypt and Ukraine and Brazil think. I mean, the youngest generation is a global. Friends in social media from all over the place, they are exposed to more. And it's that generation we're programming for. So that's kind of where I see the brand evolving long term. That's great to be looking ahead. Um, I know you're mentioning in the ICO um, comments earlier, you know, a lot of people are, there are great companies and there are the companies that are looking to turn a quick buck and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it's the ones that are looking out for um, the current generation and the younger generations to develop things that they're going to be using, just like you mentioned with, uh, with times it's, it's not so much, I mean, yes, it's, it's universal, but you have to appeal to the younger folks have any yep. sort of um, leverage on the future. Okay. So that's that's uh, that's outstanding. So, Joe, we're running a little short on time. I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, how can people contact you or find out more about Chimes? Uh, you can go to our website, chimes2b.com, and you can um, uh, talk to us there, okay? Um, you know, the uh, that's that's a good way if you're, you know, casual interest in, in the company or things like that or the ICO itself. Um, if uh, somebody's you know, wants to talk to me about a strategic alliance, something like that, they can find me on LinkedIn, ever present there. Um, that, that's a good way. And if it's you know, the media, they can get in touch with us through Transform or PR firm. All right. Well, very good. Any uh, final thoughts before we wrap today? It'll be a very interesting time. <laughs> I think uh, you know, coin offerings, cryptocurrencies, blockchain. Blockchain is going to be as transformative to the world as electricity. And it's going to have some bumps and false starts, but it's ultimately you know, much of it for the better. Joe Moen with Chimes Media. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you all for listening in to the Future Tech Podcast. We will see you here next time. 
Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018. The Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.